0: This is the Insight is Capital podcast. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Insight is Capital podcast. My name is Pierre Daly, I'm Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. Our guest today is Jason Del DelVicario, Advisor and Portfolio Manager at Hillside Wealth Management in Vancouver, B.C. Jason, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on because you're client-facing dealing with issues that many folks in our audience are dealing with. I think maybe a good way to start our conversation would be to talk about your history in the financial services business.
1: Sure. Um, so my 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 background I think is probably similar to most in that it's varied, but but a bit unique in that uh I actually have a degree in atmospheric sciences, uh meteorology, so I studied uh the weather at university, but while I was at university I would read the uh, national post well it was the financial post at the time that would be delivered at the uh, commerce building there I'd sit in the back of my class physics classes and pour through this stuff and uh, I started uh investment clubs when I was at university and and so on and so forth, and just became really interested um in that field um, part and parcel my uh my uncle gave me the wealthy barber when I was fifteen, and this 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 concept of compound interest making money off money um really captivated me. So when I graduated from university, um, I knew that I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to manage money Um, and the very first job I took was at Investors Group, um, which as we all know is a large uh, financial services uh, company and um, I was there for 10 years. Um, I uh, learned a lot. I think uh, starting a career at Investors Group is probably, uh, you know, not a bad thing that one could do in terms of, um, you know, cutting their teeth in this industry. What I learned at investors group was how to be able to communicate a uh you know a value proposition uh mainly being myself being able to help somebody with their financial affairs um We can argue whether the the product shelf at investors group is is, is in the client's best interest, and that's why I decided to move on um but I have nothing bad to say about investors group my time there was well spent and uh um, like I said, I think it's a good spot for somebody to learn in the industry. And nowadays, I mean, its I guess they're doing away with deferred sales charges, um, but it was also a way for me to be able to build my book. I mean, I literally started my very first paycheck. I'll never forget it. Investors group was negative. So I literally started uh, with zero dollars <laughs> <laughs> invested. And uh, at least back in the day, one could build uh, a practice because of the deferred sales charge uh, model. Uh, now, obviously, that's a bit more challenging today, but, you no, know, that was 1998 and it worked for me at the time.
0: Definitely, uh, very, uh, I mean, it's, I don't think, I, I think people who haven't been in the industry may not realize how difficult it is when you're getting started.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it was difficult then. I, I I honestly couldn't imagine, uh, starting again from zero today. Um whenever anybody asks me, um what they, you know, what I would do if I had to start all over again, um uh, my advice is, is relatively simple. I would either A, join a team and, uh, and sort of walk into a role in that, in that respect. Uh, or B, I would go to a bank branch, uh, become their, their branch planner or branch advisor or whatever they call it, treat the clients like gold, uh, and then after a period of let's say four or five years, uh, move out to the independent model and, and then take, you know, some of the some of the clients that you're able to take with you, um, but starting from zero uh, with zero income or <laughs> negative income as it were uh, I think would be very challenging in today's environment. How long have you been
0: an investment advisor uh, slash portfolio manager?
1: so I began my career in nineteen ninety eight at the age of uh, twenty two straight out of university so i've I've, I've been at it for twenty two years, and for the past 12 years, I have been a licensed portfolio manager. So even when I was at Investors Group, I started doing my CFA studies and then I was able to, uh, successfully pass those and, uh, became a CFA charter holder. And then that enabled me to become an associate portfolio manager. Of course, that necessitated a move away from Investors Group, um, because they're MSDA and selling mutual funds. And so I moved to Canaccord in 2006 and was an associate portfolio manager for two years and then got my full-fledged uh, portfolio management PM license in the uh, throes of 2008 and uh, have been running money discretionarily uh, for the past 10 years uh since then. And then more recently, I made a decision uh, four years ago to move from Canaccord uh, to where I am now, Hollis Wealth, and uh, I operate with my business partner under the brand name Hillside Wealth Management. And um, we... We completely revamped our business uh, four years ago. Um, I think it's important, and this is you know from the days of investors group, I still think and I shouldn't say still, I feel that it is important that a wealth management practice have two roles, and that those two roles be separated because it's very difficult to do these two roles on your own. I spent the better part of my career trying to do it, and what typically happens is that the roles are just done sort of, you know, not very well. Those roles being the planner, uh, client relationship manager, and then the portfolio manager or the person that's looking after the money. So, in terms of our practice, my role is exclusively managing money, uh, running our client portfolios, dealing with money in, money out, all that type of stuff. And then my business partner, who also so happens to be my brother in law, he looks after the client relationship management. And financial planning and uh, it's freed us both up to do what it is that we're passionate about and I think our clients are better served uh, delineating, delineating those, duties.
0: yeah, I think when you're starting out um you know without without necess- without getting into the uh, portfolio manager designation, I think when you're starting out, you have to wear so many hats, and you know you're 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 trying to do it all, and it's very hard to do it all because any of those roles particularly client relationship management or portfolio management requires – it's quite intensive. It requires a lot of energy, and it's hard to be both, or it's hard to be, you know, four or five – it's hard to wear four or five hats. So so basically – and and then I think the other thing is, you know, uh, is you've done, obviously done a good job of distinguishing yourself from um, – you know, sort of the, the average investment advisor where you've gone beyond that. You've gotten your CFA charter and very tough course. People don't already know that. Um, I mean, extremely, extremely tough curriculum, you know, a highly intensive amount of reading and, and studying for that charter. Um, but it's worth it. And, yeah, um, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's funny that
1: you should say that because when I, when I started to do my CFA, it was, it was with the motivation of it being a career insurance policy in that if I wasn't right. going to be able to make a goal of it, I building my own practice and, and, and eating what I killed, so to speak, that I would always be able to have a, a job paying, you know, a certain amount of dollars in a, in a Vancouver, well, not really in Vancouver, but say in a Toronto or a London or a New York or what have you. Um, but then obviously, um, you know, it, it served me extremely well in terms of, uh, getting my portfolio management license. Now you can, you can get your PM license now by going through, uh, uh, there's, there's kind of a backdoor way through the CIM, uh, but that wasn't available at the time. You had to have your CFA um, uh, to be able to c- become a PM. Um, and yeah, I'm glad I did it. And there's, you know, there's, the, the thing is, the reality is, is clients don't know. They don't care. Um I mean I can talk to them blue in the blue in the face about what it means to have the CFA and or, you know how you know the, you mentioned the amount of studying and so on and so forth. Um but I, I mean I take my role as a very very um uh, you know take that responsibility to heart and the CFA institute has its own fiduciary uh definition. So not only am I held <laughs> to that standard uh of the you know, the IROC um but I also I'm also held to my own professional body standard. And um so whether or not clients know anything about it or it means anything to them, it does mean something to me and, and, uh, and I'm proud to have the designation for sure.
0: Definitely. I, I mean, it's great. Yeah, obviously under the CFA charter, you, you fall under the AI, AIMR, uh, rules, uh, that's ethical, right. you know, and the ethical boundaries. But more importantly, it's more important to have your own ethical grounding than, than, than to, uh, fall back on sure. the one that's being, than the one that's being imposed by your charter. Yeah. Um, yeah. far more important. That's, that's what's more important for clients to know is, is where you yeah. stand on, on these issues and, and how that works for you.
1: I, I was going to say that it's actually a reasonable segue into talking about how, uh, so not only did we decide to, uh, join forces, so my business partner and I had to join forces and have those two distinct roles, uh, be our respective, uh, responsibility, but in terms of my, my side of the desk, um, you know, and, and kind of touching on this issue of fiduciary, I completely re- I completely revamped the way that I managed client portfolios four years ago. And what I mean by that is at the time I was, uh, part of a team at CanAcord, and our portfolios, they were discretionary portfolios, but they were littered with products that in turn charged our clients money. So ETFs, F-Class mutual funds, uh, various notes, and so on and so forth. And it seemed to me that this was not the most efficient way to manage money, nor was it necessarily the best way, uh you know, in the best interest of our clients. And ever since I was in university, I had been running my own stock screens, running my own money, and I went to all my clients four years ago and I said, okay, that's it. Well, I'm going to start managing the money the way I've been managing my own money. I have a a process here, which is a a screen which I've been very open about. I'm looking for stocks that have a cash return on equity greater than 20% for three years in a row, not rocket science, sticking to those companies, not worrying about what sector those companies are in in terms of, oh, I need a bank or I need a pipeline or what have you. And um, I was fortunate that uh, everybody but two of my clients bought in, um, which was 98% of the clients at the time. And, um, that has been a massive tailwind in terms of building our practice uh four years ago. we were at thirty million of assets under management. We're now uh just pushed over hundred and twenty million growing rapidly and um this this style of investing uh of populating portfolios of individual securities has opened the doors for us on a number of fronts, not only in terms of building a u m um uh, but now also looking at uh adding uh advisors and team members to our portfolio. I am sorry to our to our practice, who otherwise don't have the the expertise, the passion or or the or the desire to become a pm themselves, um but see that there's benefit in terms of running money discretionarily uh, and that's all come down to the way that we are uh, managing money. So we realized that by doing that, not only have we uh, improved the returns for our clients, um uh, made ourselves more referable, um, you know we're taking a lot of inbound calls and referrals now, which we've never had in the past. Um, but we're also pivoting, and rather than marketing to the retail investor, we're now uh, uh, directing our attention and efforts in terms of attracting advisors to come uh, and join our team and, and be part of
0: our our practice. Right. So you actually, you, what you've put in place actually will allow you to scale as an advisor. I mean, sorry, at to scale as a portfolio manager. I know I keep falling back to to the investment advisor, but I think I think a lot of investment advisors uh, have have. Been eyeing the transition or a transition to a, a wholly fee-based um, model, and they've been eyeing a transition to discretionary, which a lot of advisors still aren't. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's really like I think the discretionary model is is really the way to go. I think the hardest thing is when you have several hundred clients holding the same position, for example, logistically it's extremely difficult. In terms of time constraint and, you know, and logistics, to have to contact every single client in order to make a change to every single portfolio that you run, and it's, it's, you know,
1: if you yeah, if you if you explain to the clients what it means to be a non discretionary fee based manager or just a non discretionary investment manager, they wouldn't want to be a client. If I if I went if so and and. And, and I say this all well, but I mean, I, for, for for six years, I was a non-discretionary uh, investment advisor running fee-based accounts. And you know, the, the, I mean, I'll just give you an example. This is what would happen. Let's like out of ten clients, and and let's say I wanted to make the portfolio similar, so that when I went to go see John, I could talk to him about his portfolio, knowing that it was similar to when I go to went to go have a conversation with Mary, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think we agree that. The extent that John and Mary have similar time horizons, you know, blah, 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 that we would want to have them hold the same, uh, assets such that, you know, we can speak to performance and, and constituents of the portfolio in, in, in a consistent manner. But typically what happens in the non-discretionary environment is you need to call these 10 people, and what will happen is generally, on average, you'll get a hold of four, so you make the change. Um, you'll get a hold of about another four in the next week. And then two people, that are on holiday, you miss them, they miss you, whatever the case may be, you don't get a hold of them. And then what happens is the portfolio starts to drift. Then when you're before a meeting, you're like, oh, gee, oh, do they have that position? Oh, yes, they do. Okay. Oh, no, they don't have that one. And it just becomes an absolute mess to the point, and I've been guilty of this, to the point of paralysis where you do nothing. Instead of picking up the phone to make those ten, and of course it's not ten phone calls, it's a hundred phone calls or a four fifty phone calls. Exactly. You do you do nothing. Number one, and number two, you place your clients in you know plain vanilla, closet index type stuff, uh, and 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 then you just say, okay, well you know if the client says, you well, why am I down two percent? You can say, well, you know the benchmark of the market's down two percent. And and for me, it just wasn't enough to be able to do that. I wanted to do more. And I think it's I think it's important to also consider the fact that, yes, becoming a portfolio manager would make one's inbe- you know, investment advisors life e- lives easier. And then becoming a discretionary portfolio manager of course makes it more easy, but easy in the context of somebody who knows what they're doing. Many investment advisors, non discretionary investment advisors in Canada, their passion isn't managing money. They don't want to manage the money. And simply becoming a PM and a discretionary PM doesn't necessarily change their passion or lack of passion for managing money. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad people. They might be very good at, at financial planning. They may be very good at, at client relationship management. There's distinct roles in this business. And if you don't enjoy, you know, for me, that's what gets me up in the morning. I absolutely love uh, researching securities, buying securities, investing for clients doing the portfolio management, asset allocation. That's what I love to do. But there's, you know, I would say that the majority of investment advisors, that isn't their passion. So there's a dichotomy in this industry where, you know, it's, it's alluring to become a PM and discretionary PM because of the efficiencies that we've talked about. But you can't just, it's not a light switch. You know, you can't just automatically make somebody a good investment manager or portfolio manager or make, them, make that their passion. They either have it or they don't.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's difficult enough to choose a good investment manager, let alone be one. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you guys, it, what you, you you really have enjoyed a lot of success, and, and, and I, you know, I would attribute that to the fact that you've done a good job. I mean, you specifically, um, Jason, you've done a very good job in terms of the investment management within within your business uh, and on behalf of your clients. And and that's obviously a distinguishing factor that has made your business attractive to your clients and to future clients. Um now how have you gone about doing that? As a discretionary portfolio manager, uh, you know, so so you transformed yourself into you you've transformed your business into a discretionary PM. Um you've you've overcome all of these hurdles and it and you know, it, congratulations. I mean it's obviously done You know, it's obviously being uh, in your uh, client's best interest and it's worked out for your, for your company. How do you, like, what's your process, Jason? How do you guys do the actual money management? Like, what, what's going on? How are you, how are you doing your security selection? Um, so we, you know, we've talked about logistics now. Yeah. What is it that, what, what is your process?
1: So, so it's, it's, (laughs) It's funny, It's you know, th- you know, those are kind words and thank you. I, I will say that I was average to below average for 18 years out of the 22 years of my career in this business. When I, when I made uh, sweeping changes to the way that we were managing the practice, again, the, 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 the two main changes was to, to, to delineate the two roles of, of, of client relationship manager, planner, and portfolio manager – and then also the way that we're managing the money um, for our clients, I had thirty million of assets under management over an 18 year period. so I'm not a particularly good salesperson. Um, I really hadn't found my way until literally four years ago at the age of thirty eight now that might sound young, but I've been in this industry
0: for twenty two years so while I think we've um, built gee, for, for so, but for yeah for so many of those years you were trying you were wearing all the hats.
1: Being a generalist, you'll be okay at many roles. What we sought to establish was an environment where we could specialize and be exceptional at at, at a given role. So, anyway, the way the way um, so the other motivation um, to managing the money and, and structuring our practice like this was, and I'll admit it, was financially motivated, but also motivated out of I don't want to say fear, but Again, fear about where this, excuse me, where this industry was going. In my mind, if you are running money that is in closet index type fund product, when I say closet index fund, because I've said it a few times, if you're managing clients' assets that is in turn invested in a basket of Canadian securities that are representative of the index or a basket of U.S. securities that are representative of the index, and you're charging your clients two or two and a half percent, over an extended period of time, your client's rate of return is going to be whatever that index is, minus 2 or 2.5%. Two and, and at some point along the road, and we've seen this trend now is well-established, certainly well-established in the U.S. and becoming more well-established in Canada, the client's going to look at you and say, Where, where's the value? What, what value are you adding to my financial picture if I can go and buy that same product from Vanguard and pay six basis points? Then the advisor and I've had these conversations. Then the advisor is on their back seat saying, "Oh well, you need me. Uh, I I I help. You know, I tell you when how much to put into your RSP, and I make sure that you don't do stupid things and and all the things that we're taught to say uh, when the, when clients come to you with these types of things. and these were the conversations that I was getting sick and tired of having. And I said, right, if I'm going to be able to look at my clients in the eye and say, yeah, you know what? Your, your fee is 1.5%, but here's the value that I've added. Yes, some of those non-qualitative benefits such as preventing you from doing something silly in 2008, selling at the bottom, you know, making sure that your RSPs are on time and you do the maximum and the TFSA and so on. Yes, that is, there is some value there. There's no question. But I wanted to be able to point at the bottom line on the client statement and say, well, here's the value. And it then becomes quite obvious as to how you need to manage money to be able to point to the bottom line and say, here's the value that I've provided you over and above the index return and the fee that you've paid us. And it comes down to the very simple fact that you cannot beat an index if you look like the index. And once you... Have,
0: absolutely, absolutely. I think that's being, that's being empirically proven, right?
1: So, 100%. 85% of active money managers don't outperform the index primarily because they're up against a 2% fee on an annual basis. If, if, the, if the expected rate of return is 7% and 8% and you're, you're, you're up against a 2% fee every year, that's 25% of the rate of return that you need to generate over and above the index just to justify the fee. And you can't do that if you look like the index. I mean, I know it sounds silly and simple, but it's just a fact. So then what I did is I said, okay, and I've been running screens, stock screens literally since I was 18 years old, and I've been running these in the background, and I just went back to them, and I've done all sorts of studies. So I've studied Joel Greenblatt. I've studied Warren Buffett. I've studied Jason Donville, who's in Toronto, Veronica Hurst. I've looked at all of these people who have a consistent ability, who have, who have demonstrated consistent ability of outperforming the markets, and I started to look at the commonalities between them all. And what became obvious to me is that, you know, so Warren Buffett calls it wide moats. I like to invest in stocks that have a wide moat or a narrow moat. Um, you know, Jason Donbo was much more explicit in terms of what he was doing. Uh, similarly with Veronica Hurst, Joel Greenblatt, I mean, he wrote a book, The Magic Formula That Beats the Market. I mean, the information is out there. You just got to go out and find it. And so what I did mean is I aggregated all of this information, all of the uh, history of these very successful uh, money managers, And it actually came down to one ratio, and the ratio was the return on equity. And it became obvious to me that the the most important profit marker uh, of a company was its return on equity. For the listeners that don't know this ratio very well, it's simply the net income divided by the assets minus liabilities. So over a long period of time, if you can find companies that are consistently generating high returns on equity, their stock price will follow. It just—it's—it's just, it's, it's just math. It just makes sense. If you think about it, with that net income, they can do a number of things. They can buy back shares. They can pay a dividend. They can put it as cash on the balance sheet, or they can pay down debt. Regardless of that, other than paying it out as a dividend, it increases the equity of the company. And at the end of the day, the stock price will will track the equity of a company. Just a quick example for 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 listeners who might want to pull up a chart and look at this. Alimal Cash and has generated a return on equity of 20% for 30 years in a row. If you look at their stock price over the past 30 years, it has compounded at 20% for 30 years. So that is how I'm managing money. I am looking for companies that are compounding shareholder wealth at a rate greater than the market. So incidentally, the average return on equity of the TSX is around 7 or 8%. My cutoff is 20%. And the very simple theory and philosophy that I have that I communicate to our clients and, and then our team members all the time is, and this is the message I just keep beating into people's heads, if we populate portfolios with companies that have above-average financial metrics, a.k.a. the return on equity, and we hold those in concentration, and we can talk about concentration here in a little bit, that over a reasonable period of time we should outperform the market. And it's it's really that simple. The average return on equity of the stocks in our portfolios, call it twenty five percent. The average return on, return on equity of the market is seven or eight percent. So we are on average, as a basket of the companies that we own, three times more profitable than the market and therefore we should outperform. And fortunately the you know, the results have, have reflected
0: that. I mean Joan listen to your logic on this. I think the I think having Having a, a a clear set of rules to invest by is extremely important and workable, and it also allows you to run a higher concentrated portfolio. Yeah. So what's 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 really
1: interesting is we are. It's been beaten into our heads as invi- as advisors, uh, portfolio managers, and, and quite frankly, consumers in the financial services industry by the big banks generally or the big mutual fund companies, that more diversification is better. Always more diversification. Whenever I see advertising that talks about diversification, I mean, it's laughable. If you, and I've done this, if you pull up any academic study that's been written or any any sort of examination of what is the ideal number of positions in a portfolio the uh, statistics are, and the results are, between 15 and 25. Now, most people will be shocked by this because we think that it needs to be 100 or 200. But I'll, I'll just give you sort of a quick scenario here for you to help, to, to help the listeners understand. There are two risks, and, and, and by the way, this is the exact same language I, I use when I'm speaking to uh, clients or, or other portfolio managers. There are two risks to investing in stocks. The first is market risk. That's the risk where in 2008, we had a financial crisis, and pretty much every single stock fell, regardless of how their underlying financials or, or fundamentals were doing. The only way to prevent, prevent against market risk is to stick your money under your mattress, and then you've got, you know, house-burning-down risk, but, you know, be that as it may. The second risk investing in stocks is stock-specific risk, and this is where we want to zero in on. Stock-specific risk is something like, you know, Chipotle Mexican Grill has an E. coli outbreak and the Dow is up 1% that day, but their stock tanks 15%.
0: Right, right.
1: That is risk that is specific to the company that you've invested in. And that's the type of risk that we want to talk about and how we, and how how we, how we can sort of discuss how to diversify away that risk. I think conceptually we can all understand that, to, that we will be more diversified if we had two stocks than if we have one. And if we have three stocks, we're more diversified than if we have two and four and three and so on and so forth. But there's a point The marginal level of diversification, I don't want to get too geeky here, but the marginal level of diversification, which is the extra amount of diversification you get by adding the 50th, 51st, 52nd position in a portfolio, actually starts to drop, or it certainly doesn't climb as much as when you're adding the 6th, 7th, or 8th position in a portfolio. Right, it becomes very hopeful. That's right. So between 0 and 20 positions in a portfolio. 96% of the stock-specific risk is diversified out of the portfolio, and you only get an extra 4% of diversification benefit between the 20th and 200th position in a portfolio. And again, I'm not just spewing this stuff out. Go Look it up. The, the, The numbers and the studies are all over the internet, and you can look these up. Now, this is a huge revelation for somebody like me because, and this ties in really nicely with my screen, Right now in Canada, out of 3,600 publicly traded companies, there are only 27 companies that meet my criteria, which, as I mentioned, is cash return on equity greater than 20% for at least three years in a row. 27 stocks. And what I'll often (laughs) say to people is I'll say... That's very revealing. (laughs) It is very revealing. And what I'll often say to people is I'll say, okay, what do I need to... if, If the sweet spot for the number of holdings in a portfolio is 50 or 100, how do I get there? And everybody intuitively says, well, you'd have to say return on equity greater than 17% or not three years in a row, only two years in a row. So you would have to dilute the parameters or the strictness of the parameters so that more stocks fall through. And so not only are we right. running, you know, not only are we holding a basket of very high quality stocks, but more, more importantly of what we own is what we don't own. We don't own companies that have a return on equity of 2%, 4 5 8%. We don't own companies that have a return on equity of 20%, but only for one year because they had a fast product or what have you. We are owning literally the very best. 0.01% of the market is what interests us. And so we are hunting with a sniper rifle and not a shotgun, and that's how we're able to generate the, the returns that we've been able to generate. The other question that you asked is, you know, how am I doing this? It's me. It's just me. I have a Globe and Mail subscription that costs $20 a month. I have actually just signed up for Morningstar, which is going to cost me $140 a year. If anything, the brilliance of what we're doing is that this implementation of this screen, I think intuitively when I explain it to people just like I've explained it to you, it all makes sense. The most common question I get is, well, why isn't everybody doing this? This is just so obvious. Um, But it's just me. I mean. The very best Canadian balance mutual fund in Canada, the Canadian, uh, the McKinsey Canadian balance, which incidentally I keep an eye on because they're, we're kind of neck and neck. They're a little bit behind us right now, but you know, just to give you a sense of the the, the quality of returns that we're generating, you pull up their page, there's eight portfolio managers on that page. No doubt they have a Bloomberg terminal costing them thousands, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year. They have quote unquote boots on the ground, all this kind of stuff. Right, I've never right. talked to a CEO. I've never talked to a CEO who's told me to sell their stock or that it's a bad time to that. So,
0: um, sure, it's like a, I mean that's like that's like a resume. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's, well, that's like really looking. Fine. That's like looking at someone's resume. You never see you know you never see a bad one because they're you know peop- every, everybody's going to focus on the positives rather than pointing exactly.
1: yeah, out so the negative, negative square. Yeah. Exactly.